was, uh, last night, I was talking to my kids about the message. Um, I, I often give them several rehearsal sermons, you know, a full length uh, with no interruptions, and it just helps them, bedtime stuff, puts them to sleep. And they, um, I was asking them, I said, guys, I'm trying to think of an example of a time that something bad happened, and it really made you upset, but you just, you either like, you, you didn't know whose fault it was. You didn't know who to blame, you know? And, uh, the, and then I had to basically explain the concept of this, which is what I, I realized. It's like the risk that you run with kids of a certain age is uh, the moment something's introduced, you end up having to teach them about that thing, um, which is fine, but, you know, I needed them to help me, and that's not what happened. Um, I, but it, so I told them, I said, well, the, an example would be like, remember a couple months ago when our car got stolen? Uh, you guys may have forgotten because I haven't talked about it in the last 10 seconds, but uh, I'll be sure to bring it up every week. Um, and, uh, and when you see me post that car for sale, by the way, that I did get back on Facebook, don't write anything about it being stolen, okay? Um, the, uh, all those cigarette burns are mine. Um, the, the, I, was, I was like, you know, when our car got stolen, and we were like really upset, and we didn't know who did it, and we were like, we don't know who to be upset at, you know? Uh, people kind of, you, you almost even like start to want to get upset at like your neighborhood or something. You go like, like, is it, is it where we live? Is it, you know, uh, you know, but, uh, nope, it was just this person. We don't know who they are. And, and, and then I was reminding the kids, you remember the first fall that we lived here in Oregon and, uh, somebody, we don't know who was putting leaves all over our front yard and they were like dumping them on our yard. They're dumping them everywhere. And, um, and I kept picking them up and then they just kept dumping them. And they even went as far as to like go up on the roof, put them in the rain gutters, and it was like so diabolical, right? And then we found out it was this guy, Michael Sweet, who worked here as like an intern. So now he lives in Montana, that's all I'm gonna say. Um, But my son immediately goes, uh, he goes, well, so when we start talking about people doing things that make you upset, he immediately comes up with like this thing that he's really kind of fixated on right now, which is, um, either people picking on him, um, and, um, like, like one time, like if a person says something to him that's kind of mean one time, it's like I'm being bullied repeatedly, and it's a big problem. Uh, he told me the other day when I was walking into class, we have, we have, that, he pointed to a kid, he said, that kid's a gangster. And I was like, <laughs> kid's, he was like eight years old, and he looked fine, you know, um, <laughs> And, uh, and, then, and then the other thing is that he, he gets in trouble for, uh, you know, he's the kid who laughs really hard at somebody that does something wrong and then encourages him to do more. So then he gets in trouble and, um, and it's like, he's like, it's their fault, it's their fault, it's not my fault, it's that kid's fault, right? Um, but when we talk about like if kids do mean stuff to him and they say mean things or whatever, you know, and, and we try to talk about like maybe, maybe why they would do that, you know, the more that we talk about um, about the kids, oftentimes you start to realize that there isn't one clear reason why, surprise, surprise, a person does bad things, right? Sometimes he describes somebody's sort of family and I go, oh, it might be because, you know, they have like lived in lots of different families and lots of different houses and it's been really hard for them to like just know how to, how to kind of treat people or act. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of different things that, that happen in people's lives, and you go, I can't really say it's just because even they're just choosing to do this bad thing, because I also feel like if my life maybe looks similar to that, I might make some of those same choices. And I bring that up because part of, I think part of growing up is realizing that the whole idea of good and bad 
it seems to, at times, get so complicated, right? What really does it mean? Uh, like, who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? And as we were talking about our last message in this series, um, Life Upside Down, uh, it, it made sense to talk about this very, very basic idea because something as simple even as good and evil, right and wrong, what we want versus what we're against is something that the more you look at what the Bible says about it, the more you realize it is actually an upside down take on what many of us consider to be the way things are. But even that, even for many Christians, it can be upside down. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is in Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read part of it and um, the beginning of it, and then I'm actually going to read uh, from a lot of different areas of Ephesians and put them up on the screen as I do, because the whole letter talks about this, because it's a letter from Paul to a group of people in a church in a place where they're dealing with a lot of persecution and a lot of, and a lot of suffering. They're in a difficult situation and hard, consequence, and hard circumstances. And so he's, he's, telling, he's talking to them about this idea of evil and good. And the language he uses is language that you'll probably totally be familiar with if you're not brand new to church. So Ephesians 6, we're going to read 10 through 12 to start with. He says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I'm going to stop right there. I know some of you are like, no, 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 the armor's next, and I know that or something. Well, you can... You could draw the armor or something while, while, we're, while we're getting to it. So, Paul is addressing something that all of us probably know and agree with when it comes to the world, and it's this. Our world is under attack. Our world is under attack. Now, uh, you might think that this is true in terms of the whole world. The whole world seems to be under attack. Everyone seems to feel attacked. Or you might feel like this is true when you simply look at your world, your life, your sphere, and say, my world is under attack. I feel like I, it, is, it is constantly being attacked from different sides for different reasons in different ways. Uh, this one is kind of an easy one for us all to agree with. And for a guy who's known for going way too long in his sermons, I'll just say, I think we can all agree that we feel this way. That we look at the world around us and we say there's something wrong with it. There are all kinds of problems. There is all kinds of strife. There is suffering. There is evil. There are sometimes individuals. There are sometimes entire nations that seem to be attacking and seem to be what's wrong with the world. And so he says, he goes on, I actually don't have a slide for these next few verses for some reason, but he goes on and he says in the next few verses, the armor of God that we'll read. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Oh, I already read that, didn't I? But against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness 
What he's saying here essentially is this. He's saying that, yes, our world is under attack, and that, yes, we need to protect ourselves, and, yes, we are engaged in an ongoing battle. But he uses a very clear description of what it is. He says it is not a battle against flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood, this term, this phrase, it's a term that's only used when being contrasted with something else. So flesh and blood um, is sort of the other half of, we would say, there's the spirit, there's the things that we don't see, there's all the stuff behind the physical world or that, doesn't, that makes up more than just simply what we can touch, our flesh and our blood. Our world is under attack, but he says it isn't an attack of flesh and blood. We are wrestling. We are engaged in a battle. He acknowledges that. There's a reason you guys feel like this, because it's happening, and it's true. But it's not a physical one. It's not against physical people. It's not against physical groups of people. It's not even against physical nations. It's not against physical rulers, physical authorities, which is very hard for us to wrap our minds around because when we think about conflict and we think about all the difficult things that attack us and deal with us in our lives, they are physical things. We fight wars against nations. We, we are forced to punish people for crimes, and we enact laws to ensure that we will be safe from each other, right, from other people who choose to harm us, who choose to attack us, to be against us. And we look at the various, all of the things that are caused by uh, the evil in the world, right? We look at these things and, we, and we, see, we see murder and we see strife. We see things like drugs that people abuse and we see things even like poverty uh, that are the result of just, it seems evil out there. And what he says as a response to this, is that even though this battle might feel physical, it is not. It is a spiritual battle. This is the real enemy is spiritual, not physical. So we might all agree with the first part here, that we are under attack. But this is something that we have a much harder time believing. When you think about the things that make you angry, the injustices in the world the stuff that you feel like really is getting in the way of the life that you want or that you think God's telling you that you can have. Those things don't feel spiritual much of the time. They feel physical. But what Paul's saying is, for you, the people in the church in Ephesus, whose lives are so hard right now, your enemy isn't physical. It's a spiritual enemy. The truth is, he says, that the reason you need this armor to be spiritual armor is because you're fighting against the schemes, he says, of the devil. This spiritual authority, this thing that you're fighting against is an enemy. He's personal, and he's out to get you. And one of the ways that the devil, that that Satan is often described in the Bible is not with his overwhelming strength, because God's more powerful than him but with his deception, with his schemes, with his ability to lead us to want to and be tempted to believe things that aren't even true, which is actually a very effective way to wage war. Is there anything more effective that an enemy can do than to lead you to believe they're not even your enemy? 
right? And, and, and they say, you often hear this quote in one form or another, that one of, the most, uh, one of the most powerful things that the enemy has done is convince the world that he doesn't exist, right? That the real problem isn't spiritual, it's not spiritual darkness, it's, it's those people, it's that nation, it's that group, it's that way of being, it's that set of ideas, it's those things. And if those things were different, then it would be different. The enemy wants for us to not see things the way they really are. Because this is his most effective tool, weapon to use against us. I think that when we think of um, issues like mental illness, we think of it as a disability because it seems to limit the way that people want to live their lives. But the truth is, people who struggle with things like severe depression and anxiety actually uh, know what it is like to have these two sort of worlds going on at once and to have to battle between them. And those of you who are close to people and love people who struggle with these things know what that's like too. The feeling if you've ever watched a loved one go through severe depression, possibly even to the point of being suicidal, what you thought for them and what you've said to them probably is, please know that the way you're feeling isn't really a reflection of the way things are. Don't trust your thoughts. Don't trust your emotions right now. Know that it will pass. Know that it's something else. That there's this darkness that you want to give into, that you want to be deceived by, but don't let yourself because it's not true. And it can feel so frustrating if you're on the outside of that. Why can't they just stop believing this? Why can't they stop being afraid of this? Why can't they stop feeling this? And as one who's been in this place myself, of feeling that kind of anxiety and depression, I, I know the feeling even of saying, okay, so this isn't real but it seems so real. I don't know how to ignore it and get past it, right? To be deceived is a very powerful thing. And this is what the enemy does. So the evil in the world, the enemy in the world, Paul is making very clear. It is Satan. And his biggest tools are lies and deception and convincing us that he isn't really the enemy. And instead, we should focus on fighting someone else, fighting something else, devoting our lives to figuring out something else that will make the world better and lead us to a place where we can finally feel like we're not under attack all the time. Well, Paul also has a solution. Paul says some pretty critical things, some pretty hard-to-hear things, but he also offers a lot of hope with the gospel. And he says earlier in Ephesians exactly what the solution is. It's in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he essentially says here, I have good news. 
You have been saved by grace through faith, and because of that, you don't get to boast. It's not anything that you did. Not because of your works, but that you have been saved and given new life, and no matter what it feels like is going on around you in the world any longer, you are redeemed, you are rescued. It won't defeat you, it won't kill you, it won't take you out. It will not separate you from the true source of your life, which is God. That's the reason why the idea that the world is messed up drives us so crazy much of the time is because it keeps us from the life that we want. It keeps us from the life that we want to have or that we feel like we should and be able to have. And so what the gospel tells us is the good news is the enemy cannot keep you from the life that you're intended to have. He cannot get in between you and that which gives you life. And he deceives you when, he, when you start to think or believe that maybe that can happen. And the good news about it is that the result of that then is that you get to live out through these good works the freedom and the life, not because you depend on those things for life, but because they come now as a matter of gratefulness. You're so grateful for what God's done for you for the gospel that you can live this way. You can live well. So he says the real answer is Jesus. Right? The real enemy is a spiritual one, and the real answer is Jesus. Jesus is what will fix things. Jesus is basically the silver bullet, the fix-all. Every person you ever encounter, uh, the thing that they truly need in order to be okay, in order to have life, is Jesus, the gospel. Every nation, every group of people, every government, every household and family, no matter what they look like on the outside, what they need to experience real life is Jesus. That's the answer all the time, with everyone. So, he's talking to this group of people in this church in Ephesus. They, they live in a place that is considered one of the biggest sort of metropolitan trading uh, centers in the Roman Empire. And uh, it's, there's a lot of wealth here, there's abundance, there's a sophisticated sort of culture. They worship lots and lots of other gods primarily Artemis, and they have temples devoted to her, and it's a, it's a very, like, it's exactly, you know, people often say it's like the modern-day New York or Manhattan. It's the, you know, what I mean. And he's telling the people in this church who are constantly being persecuted and ridiculed for their faith, who are, feel like they are, being, they are being placed under attack constantly, he says, remember that the enemy isn't, the Ephesian people, the city of Ephesus, the enemy is not the Roman Empire, the emperor himself, the enemy is not uh, your master, it is not your spouse, the enemy is not your children, the enemy is not any of these people. The enemy is Satan. And hope is in Jesus. And what they all need is the thing that you're pursuing giving them right now. So keep at it. Be about Jesus. And then he tells them how to do that. He tells them how to do it. Now, we talked about this uh, last week, too, in 1 Peter. I mean, the, the, the Bible is filled with people, leaders of the church, saying to the people, here's how you do what you're called to do. Okay, here's how you live it out. 
even in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And Peter does a great job of telling the church what it's like to do this, especially when you're living like exiles. He says this in uh, 1 Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter says, have good conduct. Keep your conduct honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, how frustrating is it to think that you could devote your life to not being an evildoer, to actually doing good, to fighting that which is truly evil, and actually not only be ridiculed for it by people on the outside, but be called an evildoer yourself by those people. That would be infuriating. And we know much of what this feels like because many of us actually remember living in a time right here in our own country when the values that the church represented were so similar to the values that many outside the church wanted to live by that the idea of the church was still kind of a good one. You know, maybe I'll go because, yeah, they represent the way that we should be and the way I want to be, right? And and a time of, of sort of, Um, of more freedom, greater greater freedom to speak about and to not feel like we'll be ridiculed for the things that we believe, right? But now we find ourselves at a place where uh, when a person comes to the church, it it, it is despite the fact that they often feel like the values of the church are exactly what I don't want, right? Okay, fine. I, I will maybe think about this guy, Jesus, And ignore for a second that all of the values that I am the most against are the ones that I associate with the church, maybe. That they seem rigid, and they seem legalistic, and they seem condemning, they seem narrow-minded and old-fashioned. That we live in a time where you actually can be accused of being an evildoer simply for uh, attempting to do good with a desire that the world actually be better and that people come to know freedom in life that they can find in Jesus. That would be so frustrating. And what Paul is saying is that even when they speak of you that way, they look at who you are and the way that you live, that because of your conduct, because you chose even then to live well, that they would look at you and they would be less inclined to still be against the message that you have. Your goal, says Paul, says Peter, says Jesus himself, your goal is to bring people the good news of Jesus. Your goal is to do that. And so live in such a way, in all circumstances, in all relationships, so that the people look at you and say, well, they must really believe it. Or this is what it really looks like. This can be so hard to think about doing, and yet when you look at uh, Ephesians, where Paul talks about it, it is one of the most practical epistles in the New Testament. It is one of the most practical uh, books in the New Testament where we actually read specific instructions on how we live our lives what we do in our relationships and how we act. Why? Because he's very serious about this idea of actually living well 
and that being a testimony to the thing that you believe. Now, here's what's so hard about what Peter says, right? So, so Peter says this, and we're like, you know, I'm, I'm good with it. Okay, so I'm good with the world's attacking us. That's great. I agree that people need Jesus. You don't have to convince me of that one. I even kind of like this because I think the idea of good conduct's pretty good. I mean, I'm in church, right? I'm in church, aren't I? So I'm obviously here because I want to have some kind of good conduct in my life. That's good. So far, so good. These are easy ones. Maybe, maybe we'll close the series with an easy one. So blame Peter for what he says next. Don't blame me, okay? Because Peter decides, I'm going to give you guys an example then of what this would maybe look like in your life to live with good conduct. Keep in mind that these people that Peter's writing to are themselves suffering persecution to the point that he's referring to them as exiles, as sojourners, as people who don't even live in their own home. Here's what he says. He says, maybe consider doing this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh, that's not good. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution? Really? Whether it be the emperor supreme, right? He's basically saying, sub, sub, submit to the authorities, right? Be subject to these institutions. And in doing so, Show people the genuineness of your faith, right? This is such an easy thing for us to say, depending on who's in charge, right? right? He's not my emperor, right? I didn't vote for this emperor, right? I mean, is that not like exactly what most naturally happens with each of us when the person that we, that we want, the group that we want, is in power, right? We are the ones saying to everybody else, be subject to authority. Come on, stop complaining, stop arguing, stop, you know. And then, and then it changes, and it's like, well, yeah, but that's not my emperor, right? right. They're breaking the rules in a way that other people wouldn't or whatever. We always, we always say it. I mean, I can, I can fortunately now say that I have lived long enough that I can now say I remember that we always say it, okay? <laughs> Couldn't say it before. It is such an easy thing to say when we are the one in authority, when we are the one with the power, when we are the one, uh, when our party and our group, people that we agree with are in charge, and it is so infuriating when other people say it to us because we think, but they're the reason that I feel under attack. But they're the ones, they're the thing that's wrong with the world. And this reveals something in us, and this is really, really hard. And it's this, that we either fight for Jesus or we will fight for everything else. But you cannot do both. We fight for Jesus or we fight for everything else. We say the only way that people will experience life truly is in Jesus. And so I am about Jesus. Or we say I'm about other things. Other things bring life, other solutions, fixing other problems, dealing with other people, getting other situations figured out. Then the attacking will end 
things will start to get better. Or at least, at the very least, I'll be able to finally live the life that I want to live unhindered by other people. You see, the nature of the gospel is that it is offensive to us. The news of the gospel is offensive. The news of the gospel is that you're what's broken in the world. Not everybody else. It is that you need life. It is that, that, that your flesh is just as corrupted and influenced as other flesh by the fall of man. It's, it, it, it's, it's one that requires humility, and it, and it demands repentance. It, it requires you to believe that you were created by a God who has authority over you because of that, who tells you who you are. You've immediately lost the freedom to do the one thing that we all are seeking so badly to do, which is to define who we are, to discover who we are. Well, my gospel says that who you are has already been determined by God and that there is a right answer and there is a wrong answer. These are all very, oh yeah, by the way, to follow Jesus requires you to die. Who is this Jesus you'll be following? He's that guy that, that was killed, that let himself be. Well, what about the people that followed him afterwards? Well, yeah, yeah, them too. The gospel is hard for many to hear. It is described as, as being offensive, as having opponents. And so if we fight for Jesus, then we say, I will do whatever I can to remove every other hurdle towards people coming to the gospel through me. I don't want enemies. I don't want to constantly be galvanizing myself with, with everybody else. I don't want to be saying and doing things, marginalizing myself or other people, because this issue is worth fighting for. This group of people is worth fighting against in a way that will make it impossible for me to ever actually bring Jesus to this person. This is why you either will fight for Jesus or you fight for other things, but you can't do both. Because the moment you begin fighting for other things, then you have opponents, right? You have enemies. You have people that are fighting against you. And there's no way that you can go reach those people. Or at least, this is what, this is what uh, Jonah is all about. It's about God calling this prophet to the very group of people that were his enemies because of what they did. I was, um, we're reading a book in the sending school, or at least we, we did in the first one and we're going to in our next one that we do. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, it's an incredible book written by, it's called Evangelism as Exiles. And it was written by a man who was a missionary in the Middle East for many years. He left America, went to be a missionary. And then when he came back to America, he found, surprise, surprise, that the country was not the same one that he had left. And he said he felt like it was more, it felt more and more like the place that he was at where he was ministering. Things weren't presumed that had been presumed before. Certain things weren't accepted that had been accepted before. And all of a sudden, 
it wasn't okay in the way that it had been before to be a person who believes in God and believes in Jesus and has a hope that's in the gospel. And like I said before, people didn't even really want the values. It used to at least be like, you know, don't you want to be like me? Here, here's my Jesus. He didn't find that. And so he wrote this book about basically how to evangelize to people in a place that is essentially post-Christian. And in this book, one of the things that he talks about is this idea of getting worked up over things and fighting for things and how we do that and what people hear and what they see in us as we do that. And I want to read you um, a quote. I didn't have a slide for it because I didn't. And it says this. He says, uh, when we suffer, if our collective Christian tone is complaint, because Peter says to the church, that one of the biggest testimonies they have will be how they handle suffering, how they handle things going wrong for them. And he says, if when we suffer, our collective Christian tone is complaint, if we constantly lament our loss of cultural influence or social standing, if we weep and mourn as if Jerusalem has fallen when our chosen political agenda is overlooked, then we expose our true values. Those troubling circumstances have a way of unmasking our highest hopes. Sadly, far too often they reveal our hopes have actually been in this present age and not in the one to come. One of the illustrations he uses is of car alarms. There was once a day when you heard a car alarm and you freaked out because you thought someone was stealing a car. That is not how it works anymore. Are there even car alarms anymore? I don't hear them as much, but when I do, I completely ignore them. He says, you see, there were these things called car alarms, and they would go off, and everybody would stop and chase people down and tackle them and stuff and throw things at them. And then it was like, oh, wait, they're just always going off, right? And so because the car alarms are going off again and again and again all the time, then what a car alarm actually signifies to us by the end of all of that is it's the sound of nothing going wrong. It's background noise. And he says, if as believers, our response to all the other things in the world is the alarm and the noise and the fury and the contempt and the fear, then not only does it make us appear like a people who have who have our hope in this present age, not in the age to come, but it takes away our ability to actually sound the alarm for something that is really happening, which is that people are dying spiritually. And the truth is, and at least I know this is true of myself, the more I, the more I, I allow myself to be worked up by other things, the more I don't like other people. I'm the only one that feels this way, I realize. Because everybody else, naturally, the more the more angst you feel towards the problems in the world, the more you find yourself loving other people, but I'm very different in that way. I find myself disliking more people. And so what he goes on to say is that to fight for Jesus and to be the one who is waging the spiritual war, what does it look like in the life of a person? Because he actually gets very specific in Ephesians, and it's why we're looking there. Because to battle, to fight must be tangible. We must know what to do. First, we have to know what we're fighting for. We have to believe that the enemy is real, 
We have to know what the goal is of the battle, what we're trying to win for. But what does it mean to actually fight in this battle? And what you read about from Paul might surprise you. There's a reason that Ephesians is one of the most practical epistles in the New Testament. Because what Paul says to the people is that it is through the way that they conduct themselves in their everyday lives. When he says be subject to institutions, he isn't just talking about the emperor. He's talking about the relationships of people around us. He's talking about our own homes, our own lives. What he is saying is if you actually consistently live out your faith and do well in the basic things in your life, that that will be your greatest testimony. And he then goes on and he points out exactly what that looks like. The first thing he says is unity. Back in chapter 4, he opens up with unity. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says, be united with one another. If you cannot love each other and speak well of each other, then you have already lost if with all the battle going on outside of your community, if there's so much battle going on outside of your community and you can't possibly get along with the people inside your community, why on earth would anybody believe that there's hope in this gospel that you have? This is why unity is stressed over and over and over to the church. Because it is true that people look in and if they see strife, and discontent, and people treating one another badly in a family, then they believe that there's something fundamentally wrong about what they believe or their life, their lifestyle. I've never met a Christian that says that we should have disunity. I haven't. I haven't met a Christian that's like, you know, disunity, a little bit of disunity is good once in a while. It's good for us. It helps us. I, I haven't. People know not to say that. That's not something you should say. Never met somebody who says, sometimes we're supposed to just not be on good terms with each other, not be speaking to each other, uh, divorce ourselves from one another in community and, and, and walk away. But when things come up that divide us, we say in this case, right, purity matters, right? In this case, theology matters. In this case, worship matters. In this case, uh, the way that we reach people matters. In this case, the people that we reach matters. In this case, the way that we define matters. You see, we all would agree that disunity is a bad thing until something comes up and it causes disunity. And the solution, here's the great thing about it, the solution for disunity is fairly simple. Just remain united. You can disagree, you can have strong feelings, but stay together while you do it. This is a, and, and if you have any, if you're in any way skeptical of what I'm saying, then I would encourage you to just read the Bible. It's actually pretty easy. You just open it up and you read it. And you read anything about the church, anything by a church father, anything by a church leader, and it will drive you crazy if you're looking for reasons to be 
you know, disunited. I'll, a little trick I learned is when I'm, when I'm talking to somebody about something and they're like, they have an objection and they have these like very specific examples. What I will do is I will go online and I will Google objections to the thing that I care about. And if I pull up the stuff they're saying, I'm like, they literally Googled for things that they could like, have you, have you ever done this? Have you ever really been like frustrated by something and so you're like, I'm gonna Google it, I'm gonna find my evidence for the way I feel that I know is right based on no evidence, right? So we do that in the Bible too. We go like, oh man, I'm gonna, oh man, oh, here we go, here we go. Oh, they're getting the big guns out. Unity, okay, be united, okay, let nothing divide, okay, hold on, hold on, I'm gonna get there, it's gonna be here somewhere, right? I mean, I've done this before, and I've been so frustrated, and have walked away and been like, man, I just have to have unity. He says, if you can't be united with one another, then what good would your witness be outside of that group? And it's true. He goes on and talks about purity. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Ephesus is a place where it's likely that sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness was completely normal and acceptable socially. And so the idea is if you live in a place where this thing is so normal, it's so like just everybody does it, everybody is this way, then you go, so it's not that big of a deal, right? Isn't it all about us just being like, you know, not worse than the people, you know? or maybe just a little bit better than the people around us. And what he's basically saying here is, no, doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter what the the culture around you is like. It doesn't matter what these things are like. Just because there is impurity, just because there's sexual immorality. These are all the things that you see creep up in places that have a lot of wealth and a lot of prosperity, and there's a lot of different people and a lot of different belief systems, is you have apart from sexual impurity and immorality, is you have covetousness, right? Everybody just wants, right? We don't live in a society like that, right? Where everybody just wants, that's like the one given, is that you want more than you have. You want things other people have. You're constantly thinking about that stuff, driven by and motivated by that stuff. That's normal, though. It's typical. It's how it is. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? And Paul's like, don't be like that. Be pure. Be the people who are pure because you don't actually need those things. He talks about words. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He says it doesn't matter like what people say and how people talk. You are to be people who don't let impure things come out of your mouth. He says, if you can just be consistent in this way, and it will show people. It will show people that you believe. Uh, Sobriety, look carefully then at how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. See, it's common in life to not want to think much about things, to not want to feel things, to not be stressed about things, to not be anxious about things. It's common in life to want to escape things. 
And this, friends, is what drunkenness is for. You can escape. You don't have to deal with it. Some get so addicted to the escape that you're living in a constant state of escape. It isn't just alcohol. There's all kinds of ways and things that we use to just cope with things. And what, what Paul says to the church is you are to be sober people. You're to be the group of people that say, I don't need to escape this and I don't need to just cope with the truth of life. He doesn't say it's going to be easy. Chances are you will be the people who are wrestling through things that most other people often don't even think about because you're actually thinking about them, because you're actually going through them for real. And so he says when you pick up the drink, when you are about to take the pill, when you're about to smoke something, when you're about to do whatever you do to escape and to shut your brain off, and to not have to be you or not have to deal with this thing, would you remember to just be simple, simply be consistent? If you have a hope in Christ, then you can deal with truth and reality and what's going on right in front of you. He says, marriages, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He says, have marriages where you, and this is going to be absolutely shocking to hear, where you actually love, respect, and sacrifice for one another. Right? Because the truth is, marriages in which the wife submitted to her husband were often, usually they were situations where she was forced to do so because she was considered less than him. That uh, she had no choice but to submit to her husband who ruled over her. That, that, uh, or you had the opposite extreme in a place like Ephesus with female gods that were worshipped. You had households that were flipped and the exact same thing was happening where women were lording over men and were, and were authoritarians over them and there was no sense of mutual sacrifice. And so what's the analogy given for the marriage, for a husband and wife? It's always the same one. Christ and the church, Christ and the church. Well, what did Jesus do for us? Well, he gave his entire life for us. He emptied himself, and emptied himself out for us. So, it is simple. Be a person who, as difficult as marriage is, is one who still strives to sacrifice yourself for this other person. That if you live that way, and if you do that, if you show love and respect for each other, if you, if, basically, if you just mean on year 10 what you said at the altar, right? I will do this, I will be this, I will be this. If you live it out. Remember, remember that really elaborate part of your wedding ceremony where you like thought up every possible scenario in which you wouldn't want to do those things? Families, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise. Fathers do not provoke your children to anger. I like that every time I read one of these, people are kind of like, here we go, here we go. Let's do this. Let's do this. To be in a situation where a father or mother would lord over as an authoritarian their children because this might be the one place in their life where they feel like they have control and they exasperate them. To, to recognize that what he says here is that this is the first commandment with a promise, which means 
if you, he says, submit to authority, honor your father and mother, he, he is literally saying it will go better for you in life down the road. Why? Well, I mean, you can look at any study about the development of people anywhere ever, and it will tell you that if we have a healthy understanding of authority from our earliest like days of life, then we will not begin to build up the baggage that so many often build up from the very beginning that makes it impossible for us to have a healthy relationship with all the other people in our world, to believe that we can actually trust our parents. And how do you show trust? Is by submission. He even goes as far as to talk about bond servants. He says, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening. I like that he says it that way. And stop your threatening. You can tell they were doing that. This is one of the most controversial few verses in the New Testament, because the question people ask is, if Paul is talking to the church, why is he, if he is talking to some masters and some slaves, why is he not saying there, you need to be done with this slavery thing, and we need to start right now? Who's with me? Now, Paul knows that his job is not to rise up a rebellion against the injustices of the Roman Empire, of which this was definitely not the worst one. Had he done that, the church would have probably just been squashed and that would be it. His job was to advance the gospel, to preach the gospel, to believe that even more than slavery, that having Christ was life for people. That in these churches where you had slaves and masters worshiping alongside one another, and what he says to them is this, he says, even if you have no respect for your master, work as if unto the Lord. Not just because someone's looking, not while you're rolling your eyes, and don't insult them behind your back with all the other people that do. And for the people that have bond servants, don't exploit them, don't demean them, don't take advantage of them, don't wear them out. What Paul's essentially saying is the way that we live this out is that we seek to actually do the things that we talk about. It's fairly simple in nature. The challenge is doing these things. The challenge is actually living out these things. It requires maturity. It requires sacrifice and selflessness. Yesterday, Matt mentioned that we had a memorial service for Brent Burson. Many of you were there. And it was an incredible time to uh, be able to be a part of this group of people reflecting on his life. And the thing about it was it was the one time that I've heard the same thing again and again and again, and I haven't gotten bored listening to it. Because everybody basically said the same thing about Brent in a different way. They said in these areas, and they named a few, Brent was the real deal. He spent, all of, he spent all of his time as a marriage counselor. They said he probably counseled more married couples than anyone else in the Portland area over his career because it was his passion. And apart from just talking to people about marriages 
Then Sue got up and said, here are the actual steps that we dedicated ourselves to early on so that we would have a healthy marriage. And rather than just talking about parenting with other people and teaching Sunday school classes on things like this, he, his kids stood up and said, this was the day each week that we got together, even into adulthood, to have dinner and talk about our faith. He and uh, Dave shared how he and, and Brent had been praying every single week for 30 years up until the day of his death for their families because they wanted to do well there. The really amazing thing about it was to sit there and think, how rare is it for a person to actually do these things that we talk about so much? It's why finishing well is so rare, and it's something that we all desire for ourselves, right? And I can tell you, personally from experience, it is much easier to talk about these things than to do them. And it made me stop and think, what am I actually putting into place in my life? What am I thinking about in my life that, that am I doing that? Because Brent would come home at the end of a day exhausted from being with people and helping people, and instead of saying, okay, now leave me alone, I'm going to be a jerk for the rest of the day, he would actually do these things that he knew were important. And as I look at my life and I think about the vast majority of days that I come home after being with people and after talking about things and saying how important they are and just say, leave me alone, I'm going to be a jerk for the rest of the day. I think about how easy that is for many of us. As much as this series might talk about these really big concepts and ideas, it does also come down to this simple fact of Paul saying, uh, you are in a battle and this battle is against an enemy that you must recognize because he is deceiving you and trying to make it seem like he's not real. And when you see who the enemy is and you know what you're fighting for, which is that people would come to know Jesus, not that the world would go back to the way it was, not that certain things would change so everything would be better, but so that people would have Jesus. And then what do you do instead of working on everybody else? Instead of focusing on how much other people and other groups and other things need to change, focus on yourself. If you are the person that is focusing on yourself, people will see it and it will lead them to Christ. 